Hi, I'm Yuan Li. Welcome to the Elucidations Podcast. The central tenet of Buddhism seems to be the so-called Noble Path, that is, a way of life that can help us soothe and get rid of the suffering that is everywhere in human life. As such, Buddhism is usually taken to be a private, personal, and introspective phase. In this episode, Graham Priest challenges this perception by noting that one central aspect of the Noble Path is compassion. Which requires us to care not only about our suffering, but also that of other people. Priest argues that Buddhism has a public dimension and indeed has a political philosophy, at a core of which is fostering an egalitarian community. To hear more, please join our episode, co-hosted by Matt Techman and Henry Curtis, where Graham Priest talks about Buddhist political philosophy. Elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman. I'm Henry Curtis. With us once again is Graham Priest, distinguished professor of philosophy at the City University of New York Graduate Center and professor emeritus of philosophy at the University of Melbourne, and he is here to discuss Buddhist political philosophy. Graham Priest, welcome back to Elucidations. Hi guys, thank you. Welcome back. <laughs> so curious parties can listen to our previous episode. On Buddhist metaphysics,、uh, for more details on this, but maybe we can just begin with a quick recap of the Four Noble Truths, which serves as sort of the、um, ethical underpinning of a lot of Buddhist philosophy. Okay, so the Four Noble Truths are as follows: first of all, life is characterized by dukkha, which is、uh, unhappy states, if you want to phrase it like that. The second noble truth: when we experience these unhappy states. There's a cause, or at least one cause, which we have under our control, which is the mental attitude we bring to bear over these things.、Uh, if you like, attachment and aversion. A third noble truth is a corollary: get rid of the cause, you get rid of the effect. So you change your headspace, then you won't get,、uh, you won't experience unhappiness when things go wrong. And then the fourth noble truth is itself an eightfold. It's the eightfold noble path, which is a bunch of techniques, if you like. To help you to change your headspace, and these are partly, you know, understand the world in which you live, partly understand what your body and your mind are doing, but then three of them are explicitly ethical, or at least a Western philosopher would recognise them as ethical:、uh, right action, right livelihood, right speech. If you want to summarise those,、uh, don't go around being an arsehole to people. Okay, but this, the, the whole four that sort of define the basis of Buddhist ethics. There's a presupposition which is never made explicit, which I sometimes think of as the zeroth noble truth, <laughs> which is that suffering is bad. And the first time you hear that, you think, "Oh yes, that's obvious." And the second time you hear that, you think, "Well, is it quite so obvious?" And then the third time you hear that, you have a serious debate about the question. But the thought is generally that suffering is a bad thing, and that's why. Most people want to get rid of it, and that's true enough. What would be an example of a situation I might be in where it might help to like apply the、uh, eightfold path?、Um, you lose your job, and of course, not many people would be very happy with that. But、um, 
the thought is that, hey, your job is going to end sooner or later anyway, and you shouldn't be so attached to it, because doubtless it was good to have the job, and you enjoyed it, and it gave you many rewards, and so on, but all things have come to an end, so that was a phase in your life. New phase is coming, now welcome the new. So accept the things you can't change, and change the things you can. Yeah, if you like. You say that you think that, you know, we might call the zeroth noble truth, the idea that suffering is bad, and you say kind of, okay, the first time you think of that, it's obvious, and then progressively as you think more and more about it, it becomes a little bit murkier as to whether or not it's true. One way someone might say that, you know, suffering can be good is the suffering that's involved in some sort of admirable pursuit. So let's say I'm an artist and I'm trying to make, you know, some sort of exquisite, beautiful piece of art. I might have to really suffer in the process of creating that. So if I were to follow the Eightfold Noble Path as it's laid out in Buddhist philosophy, would I then have to eschew the sort of sufferings, the sufferings involved in activities that are creative? No, no that, that's a good thought. I think the first thing to get your head around is that the Buddhist path is not one of sitting on your cushion blissing out. Okay? Um, the Noble Path is a path of engagement, especially in later Buddhism where compassion becomes a central virtue. Compassion is not just saying, oh, what a poor bastard. It's actually getting off your bum and doing something about it, right? So you have to act in compassion. You have to engage in life to help people in a compassionate fashion. So Buddhist philosophy is very much in concerned with being engaged with life. You know, Jay Garfield once said to me, Buddhism is not about freeing you from life, it's about freeing you for life. So that doesn't mean you shouldn't do things as long as they don't go around screwing up other people. And some of the good things to do in life are certainly creating art. And funnily as that may sound, that doesn't mean you have to be attached to the end. I mean, you might think it follows because to do it you have to have the desire, desire is attachment. Okay, that's too fast. You have to have the goal to act. That doesn't mean that you have to be emotionally engaged with it. You can engage in something because you think it's a bloody good thing to do. Right? So you can think that you should act compassionately. You're not always going to succeed. You're going to fuck up sometimes. Um, when you do, well, you know, you say, well, I'll put that down to an experience in life and get on with it. And sometimes you're going to succeed and then you can be happy about that. But you know that the success is going to be transient You because know, everything is in life. Okay, so come back to art, okay? So given what I've just said, it should be clear that there's absolutely nothing to stop you being engaged in production of art as long as you're not attached to it in the sense of the second noble truth and that sometimes you're going to fail. Well, that's life, you know, you get used to it. When you do, you put it behind you and get on with the next whatever. Um, sometimes you're going to succeed and get your art shown in the Met or whatever. But... You, you know that's a transient achievement anyway, so you shouldn't be too attached to it. But you, that doesn't mean you can't get joy and pleasure out of it. So, I mean, bottom line is you do not have to suffer to produce great art. Now, you know, maybe artists, some artists have been tortured people, Van Gogh, Beethoven perhaps, but that's certainly not true of many great artists. You know, Picasso, Bach lives very happily lives, so it's not that to produce great art, you have to go deaf, live in a garret, starve, etc., etc. So this is more of a general question, not as much a follow-up. It seems like the Eightfold Noble Path is originally conceived as a way to get rid of suffering in my own life. Yes. Right? 
So how does it then follow from that that the way that I'm supposed to treat other people, right, is something that Buddhist philosophy, yeah, should encourage you to do? Yeah, look, you're absolutely right. There's nothing as such in the Eightfold Path which undergirds compassion as a virtue, if you like. I mean, certainly, you know, the middle triad of the eight is, you know, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And generally speaking, those are compassionate. You should act compassionately. So that's there. But why should you act compassionately? I mean, you know, these things are not, not sort of given because they're without rationale. They all have a rationale. What is the rationale? Well, I think in early Buddhism, a lot of the rationale is that if you act selflessly, then you do a lot to destroy this act of attachment to your own ego, which is dukkha, um, suffering generating. There's certainly an element of that in it. I mean, maybe that's not so much ethics as prudence, although sometimes it's very hard to draw the distinction between these two things. But certainly there are later Buddhist ethicists who engage with this question directly, and they want to say that it's not simply a matter of prudence. So in later Buddhist philosophy, Indian Buddhist philosophy, compassion is the central virtue, and it's an end in itself. It's not prudential. And the question is, how do you understand that? And probably the greatest Buddhist ethicist was a man called Shantideva, working in about the 8th century in India, who writes a long tract on this. And like most ancient texts, people argue about how you interpret it. However, the thought is something like this. Hey, look, suffering is bad, okay? And the badness of it does not depend on whose suffering it is. I mean, in a sense, you know, the question of who is a bit of a chimera anyway, because there's no self that experiences the suffering. They're just kind of experiences of suffering, and suffering is bad. So if it's bad, you want to get rid of those experiences, and who they belong to is kind of irrelevant. So I think that's a kind of a very standard Buddhist justification of this. Yeah, this is interesting. So, you know, given that the topic of this episode is political philosophy, it seems like some of the stuff we've discussed feels first personal. Some of the stuff we discussed feels like, yeah, you lose your job. You're not going to be able to get it back by force. So you should learn how to deal with it and move on. That feels kind of like something that an individual would do or an attitude that an individual would decide to take on. Um, this idea that suffering is bad and we should try to minimize the overall amount of suffering in the world feels more third personal, uh, feels more like I'm not talking about me in my own life, but just everybody, society at a mass scale. Do the ideas that we've been discussing in moral philosophy sort of lead naturally to some sort of political program or some view about how society should be set up? Well, um, I think this starts by taking us back to Henry's question. I mean, and what I call the zeroth noble truth. Okay, the zeroth noble truth is that suffering is bad. And even if you think that that's not universally true, it's a pretty good guide to life, right? And then why why not just my suffering, why other people's? Well, that's the kind of suffering is bad period. It doesn't matter whose it is. There is no who in a way, right? In, in In a certain sense. Okay, so once that's on the table, then it's clear that Compassion is an important ethical virtue. And so you want a society uh, which is as compassionate as possible, and certainly not one which goes around inflicting gratuitous suffering on people. So that raises the question of how do you... Well, what would such a society be like? 
and how would you get there from where we are, which are both crucial questions. So that's the kind of domain that Buddhist ethics takes us into, I think. And now we start to engage with very recognizable themes in political philosophy. I mean, in a way, it feels like the dual of utilitarianism. If the ideal there is to maximize the amount of happiness that there is experienced by somebody or other in the world, maybe like the opposite of that, in a way, is to minimize the amount of suffering experienced by someone in the world. Yeah, it's, it can be seen like that. Look, there's a, um, there are current debates amongst Western philosophers as to how to conceptualize Buddhist ethics. Some people have argued that it's a form of utilitarianism. Some people have argued that it's a form of virtue ethics. In truth, I think it's neither of those, although it has elements of all those things. So it, it doesn't fit comfortably into any of the Western categories. My old friend Jay Garfield said to me once, Buddhist ethics is like plumbing. Your plumbing goes wrong, you've got a problem. Let me tell you how to fix it. And I would add that if your neighbour has got a problem with their plumbing, you better fix it too, because otherwise it's quite likely to become yours. And anyway, they're not having a happy time with their screwed up plumbing. So, I mean, um, there are certainly utilitarian elements in Buddhism, negative utilitarian, as you want to put it, but that doesn't tell the whole story. Has there been a great deal of political philosophy in the various Buddhist schools of thought? Very little, very little. Generally speaking, Buddhism has been concerned more with private practice than public practice. So there are remarks in some of the early sutras that the Buddha makes about political organization and uh, there are some early Madhyamaka texts by Nagarjuna which gives advice to the ruler uh, that's the Ratnavali but generally speaking Buddhism has not gone there uh, interestingly over the last 70 years we've seen this change because there are a bunch of philosophers who fall under the general rubric of engaged Buddhists who are people who have taken the Buddhist message to heart and said, okay, well, it's not good enough just to sit on our bums. We've got to get out there and improve the world. So one of the early people who fell into this category was the Vietnamese Zen monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, who was engaged in the Vietnam War, trying to sort of end the war. But there are other philosophers, Buddhist philosophers, who are often thought to be in this league. The, the current Dalai Lama is one of them as well. So there is a general movement to moving from understand that Buddhism is not just a personal practice, but it's also, it should be a socially engaged practice. And of course, it should always have been like that, just because compassion is the central virtue in, in Mahayana Buddhism. It's just that Buddhist philosophers, I think, have, generally speaking, not taken this to heart until perhaps fairly recently. So you might think that the desire to minimize suffering is kind of open-ended when it comes to like how to implement it. Maybe some people think the best way to keep the level of suffering as low as it can be is via lots of charities, for example, and maybe some people think the best way to keep the amount of suffering as low as it can be is via aggressive social programs funded by public taxes or something. Is that right? Is the um, political program that you're interested in open-ended in that way? Well, I mean, given the sort of general goal, how to realize that is not at all obvious, as you say. So this is where serious political debates start. Now, I mean, as you look around the world that we currently live in, it's very hard to go past the thought that an enormous amount of suffering that's occasioned is caused by capitalism for all kinds of reasons. I mean, 
capitalism functions for the wealthy. We all know about the 1%. Okay? And the 99%, their well-being is not really considered. Their function is to make wealth for the 1%. And uh, they can be used and abused in the process, you know, exploited, made redundant, given false desires. Because, you know, if, if you're selling something, you want people to buy it. So you use this kind of advertising, which induces in people all these kind of illusory desires that if they buy a new pair of shoes or whatever, they're going to be fulfilled or happy, you know, just complete bullshit. Then have a think about what capitalism has done to the third world. And all the sort of people that have been destroyed in South America because of the exploitation of American capitalist countries, think about the way that capitalism is driven by a constant requirement for growth. And we know what happens when economies go into recession. And this has very serious effects. Um, capitalism is predicated on constant growth. And you know what is constant growth doing to our environment at the moment? Um, well. A lot of people are already suffering from this. But, hey, as sure as hell, in the next 50 years, unless something fairly miraculous happens, a lot more people are going to suffer. You know, a lot of the world's coastal area, including South Manhattan, is going to be underwater. We're going to see mass migration. We know what problems migration causes. So, you know, if you start to think about the effects of capitalism, the litany of its disastrous consequences is pretty obvious. Okay, now I haven't tried to be systematic about this. This is just a kind of smorgasbord of some of the immediate things that will come to you. So it seems to me that there is no Buddhist who could be content with a capitalist system. It just screws people over too much. We shouldn't have an economic system whose main aim is the production of wealth, not the happiness of people. I mean, the point of capitalism is the use of people for the production of wealth. Whereas any rational person should think that the point of wealth is the happiness of people. It occurs to me that one other possible connection with capitalism is via this idea of the self. So if you look at any advertisement on TV, it does this thing that in the fancy academic literature sometimes it's called interpolation. But what that is is, you know, the ad is addressing you, the individual. This generic product that's made in a factory, it's for you. It's the kind of thing that's going to make you feel more like the kind of person you want to be, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like a lot of like sort of marketing of mass market products is geared towards um, being an ingredient in each of our sort of self-conceptions, as it were. Well, absolutely. And um, I don't know how much you know about modern advertising, but um, one of the founding fathers of advertising was a guy called Bernays, who was actually the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Hmm. And Bernays was active in the 1920s, and he was the first person who applied modern advertising techniques. He reckoned he could sell anything. You just have to appeal to people's egos, their subconscious feelings of inferiority, blah, 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 blah. So a lot of the modern advertising techniques were developed by Bernays. Now, later on, Bernays worked for not only advertising companies, but for political parties. And his techniques were used in terms of political salesmanship. So a lot of them have been taken over by political advertising and so on. So your comment about advertising of products for sale applies equally to political advertising nowadays. I mean, they're attempts to manipulate your psyche, not for your benefit, for goodness sake, but for the benefit of whoever is making the adverts or whoever is paying for the adverts to be made, let's say. It seems like another 
possible connection between Buddhist philosophy and capitalism, and specifically the Buddhist idea about the non-existence of the self, is that a lot of the philosophical arguments that seem to be given in defense of capitalism involve the idea that there are kind of these self-standing agents capable of entering into contracts with one another, and that there's something then unethical about sort of interfering in that process. How would you think the idea of the non-existence of the self sort of undermines this idea that say, you know, if I sell someone to something or if I, you know, employ them in some way, that um, this is one kind of autonomous agent and another autonomous agent sort of interacting in a justifiable way. Okay, look, Marx is very good on this. So the kind of view that you're explaining is a view that you find being developed in the West in the 17th, 18th century. It's contractualism. So you find it in Hobbes, in Locke. And the thought is that everybody is an autonomous agent. Everybody is sort of completing themselves with a bunch of desires. And then we all come together to... um, okay, we need some kind of central control for the mutual good. But the point is that we all come together in a social contract to make contracts with each other. It's no coincidence that this view arises in Western philosophy when capitalism is hitting its straps because in some sense it's just an ideological justification of capitalist practices. It's what you need for me to justify my treating, my using you. Okay, you come and work for me. Okay, I'll pay you a minimal wage, but that's okay because you're doing it of your own free will. Okay, I know you. If you, you know, don't get a job, you're going to die. Well, you know, you're a free agent. Okay, so this is a piece of ideology that's tried out, but it's based on false metaphysics. People are not, they're not independent agents. No person could live for the first five or six years of their life if it weren't for their mother or father or their carers, right? And just think about, no, never mind the kid, think of the, an adult. How can an adult flourish on a desert island? Think of all the things you do which depend on other people, like, you know, the software you buy to record this program, like the food you buy in the shop, like the friendships you have which contribute to your life like travelling on an airline to see interesting places, like, oh, okay, the list just goes on. You and I could not flourish without a society, okay? So this thought that we're all autonomous agents which come together with our desires, well-defined, just to be traded off against each other, is, is just false metaphysics. We are essentially social creatures. That's Marx, okay? But it's exactly the same in later Buddhism, because no one is what they are in and of themselves. Everyone is what they are dependent on other things. And the other things, the Buddhists weren't so terribly interested in other people. But hey, the point was there, that other people are shit important for you and me and for each other. When I try to think of an example of like a government that sort of identifies itself as Buddhist, um, the first example that comes to mind is Myanmar. And we don't necessarily have to talk about Myanmar, but I guess I'm just sort of curious as to, like, have there been any historical examples of these ideas about selfhood and the essential social nature of people, uh, you know, being implemented in practice in the name of Buddhism? Yeah, fast answer, no. Slower answer is a bit more nuanced. Um, There are, of course, countries in the world which have as a state religion Buddhism. Myanmar is one of them. But there are others, you know, Thailand does. 
what happens when you get any orthodox religion taking over is that religion starts to function as a basis for the power structure. So people in power will invoke the religion when it satisfies, when, when, it's, when it's conducive to their ends. Now, I mean, this is true of Christianity, obviously it's true of Islam, it's equally true of Buddhism. And so what happens is that often you will get the Buddhist religion, not the philosophy, but the religion being evoked to justify what they want to do. Myanmar is an obvious example of this. Okay, So what the, the Myanmarese, is that the right word, uh, military are doing to the Rohingya is just unconscionable. Okay, So you can, even though it's nominally a Buddhist state, you cannot claim that this is being driven by Buddhism. Okay? Um, so that, that's one issue. There are other places that have a state religion of uh, Buddhism. Tibet is the obvious example. Tibet hasn't been exactly as brutal as Myanmar, but it's not exactly an egalitarian society. It has a sort of priestly hierarchy, and often many things run for the priesthood. Um, so that's not nearly as bad as Myanmar, but it's hardly the utopian Buddhist society. The one society, I think, which has made an attempt to implement Buddhist philosophy is Bhutan, which you may well have never heard of. Okay, It's a Himalayan kingdom to the east of um, Nepal, which is at least nominally driven by the desire to produce a happy society. And the index of... Uh, the well-being in society is not how well the economy is running, but how happy people are. Now, okay, now you've reached my limit of knowledge about Bhutan. How well this society runs, I have absolutely no idea. I'd love to go there and find out. So but, but, the, but the problem is, I mean, there isn't a model for what a good Buddhist political society is like. You know, Buddhism has been implemented by kingdoms, by religious hierarchies by maybe not anarchist societies. But, I mean, Buddhism tells you what the aim of a sensible society is like. It doesn't give you a political structure to achieve that. So there isn't really a blueprint. I mean, this is one of the challenges, I think, for any Buddhist who wants to engage with political philosophy, to kind of think through these issues. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, there isn't a Buddhist canon on this to draw on, really. Hmm. It kind of sounds like, based on what we were talking about, that pursuing a political program on these lines might look, I guess, a bit like socialism or possibly anarchism. Um, those are the two political movements that first jumped to mind as, uh, you know, resistant to capitalism. Yeah, look, I, I think that's right. Look, the word socialism has so many meanings that it's almost a useless word, I think. But certainly, you know, one of the things about a socialist society is that it runs for people and tries to minimise the suffering of people. To that extent, it's, it's Buddhism is sympathetic to that. But, you know, well, what passes for socialism is often a long way from that. I mean, in the United States, you know, socialism of the Bernie Sanders kind is, you know, perhaps just to the left of Angela Merkel. So it's not very far to the left on the political spectrum. Certainly, well, anarchism, OK. Um, again, how you understand an anarchist or syndicalist state is not obvious. But there, there is an obvious problem with power structures. Uh, and we see this in capitalist countries. We see this in the old Soviet Union. Once a power structure is established, and it might be political, it might be religious, whatever, what we see is that the power structure starts to function for its own benefit, not for the benefit of the people who are in power. You know, as Lord Acton said, um, 
power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So I think any Buddhist who thinks through a sensible society is going to be strongly against hierarchical power structures to the extent that's entirely to the extent that's possible. What extent is it possible? Hard question. Hmm. But something maybe decentralized at least. I, I think it has to be strongly decentralized. Yeah. One of the central tensions that surrounds discussions of anarchism has to do with the power that an anarchist state would have or you know, the anarchist lack of a state, anarchist communes, communities would have to kind of affect the change that's been caused by the damage of past systems. So what would you think would be the lesson of Buddhist philosophy, specifically a Buddhist philosophy that attempted to diminish suffering in the world on that debate? Because I could see some people being against hierarchies because of the suffering they cause, but thinking that the most effective way to rid the world of compassion quickly, some of the most severe forms of compassion would require at least perhaps a temporary, strong, authoritative state. No, this is a very good point. I mean, look, there there are two issues here which we should separate. The first is, okay, what would your ideal society be like? And, you know, in truth, we haven't got a clue, okay? That's something we have to maybe do by trial and error. But the second is, you know, even if we thought we knew what that would be like, how do you get there? Presumably, you know, it would be good to head for some kind of decentralised state. But then there's the issue you raise about how the fucking hell you get there. Now, there's a catch-22 in anarchism. Because any transition you make to a different political state is going to occasion a backlash. You know, that's political science 101. Um, We've seen that in the Soviet Union. We've seen that in the United States. We've seen that, you know, whenever there's a change of political economic regime... The people who have power are not going to sort of sit down and take it easily. There's going to be a backlash. And often the people in power have control of the military, the police. That's an awful lot of firepower. So often, if you want to change things, you're going to have to worry about the backlash. Now, we know that without some kind of organisation, probably central organisation or coordinated organisation, you've got Buckley's chance against a coordinated backlash. So you need this if you're going to fight a backlash. Now here's the catch-22. You need the central organisation, otherwise you can't get there. But once you've got the centralised organisation, you have this feature of power structures that it's going to start to run for its own benefit. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I don't think there's any easy solution to this question. So do you think the sense in which Buddhist philosophy is anti-authoritarian, the sense in which Buddhist philosophy encourages its adherents to think of answers and think of questions somewhat for themselves, do you think in any sense that would have implications for a Buddhist political philosophy or any sort of politics informed by Buddhism, whereby we would think that because the philosophy is anti-authoritarian, the actual politics itself should also be anti-authoritarian and anti-hierarchical in a similar way? No, I don't think that necessarily follows, although it might be true. And I think, for a start, one really needs to draw a distinction between the philosophy and the religion. You're right, as a philosophy, there's no God in Buddhism, and so there's no sense in which there can be divine revelation. And uh, in one of the sutras, the Kalama Sutra, the Buddha says, don't believe something just because someone tells you, some priest tells you, because it says so in a sacred text. You know, you 
make your mind up figure it out for yourself well it's a bit more nuanced than that but you know that's the bottom line so there is this kind of don't believe it just because someone in authority tells you you go and see whether it makes sense for yourself okay that's the philosophy I mean it must be said that Buddhism as a religion is enormously hierarchical and top down and uh, the you know a novice monk actually has to you know do what the head of the temple says and uh, don't try sort of arguing too much with them about it otherwise you might not get very far in the priesthood and so you know it's a it's a, a top-down power structure so that's not quite the same as the philosophy however put set that aside your question was given that the philosophy is you know figure it out for yourself so it's anti-authoritarian in that sense does that imply that the political structure should be anti-authoritarian and i don't think that follows um once we move to the question of a political system, the question really is what kind of political system is going to be most efficacious in the general aims of Buddhist ethics? And it seems to be an empirical fact that you know, power structures function in just the way I've described. I don't think this is a priori. Uh, it just seems to be a lesson from history that power structures pretty soon start to function in the interest of those in power. So that's why I think most Buddhists might well be against some kind of political hierarchy of power. But I think that's a kind of separate point. Um, So Henry and I are um, super fired up about this topic now, and we want to get out there and change the world. (laughs) Um, What would be an example of like a contemporary, like sort of political debate or issue or... You know, sort of policy question uh, that would benefit from this type of perspective. So you pick virtually anything, because any political policy is going to have consequences. That's what they're aimed to do. So you need to think through the consequence of political decisions, not only political decisions, but political structures. And you've got to decide what is the best political decision, or what the best sort of political structure is in terms of the consequences and that can be amazingly local I mean it can be you know what's the best way of making the New York subway run better it could be bigger it could be you know is the current way that politicians are elected in the United States sensible to which the answer is obviously no (laughs) it could be hey you know um, what's passes for democracy in current Western societies well democracy might be quite a good thing maybe maybe not but we haven't got it I mean we live in a world which is financed by capitalism I mean ask well well, ask who benefits by it it takes us back to this Um, and the people who benefit by it are the people who are rich and can pay for ads or at least the people who get elected because you know they, they receive money from people who pay for the ads, etc., etc., etc. So I mean, the, the sort of question you're asking works at all levels. Anything, any decision you take has political ramifications, and you think through what the consequences of those are. And I'm not suggesting there's a magic bullet for any of this. I mean, I don't have any magic solutions, and neither does anybody else. But sure as hell, sitting on our ass and just accepting the status quo is not giving us a better kind of society in fact 
looking at what is happening to the world's environment at the moment, you know, we're all going to, oh, okay, I probably won't see it, but my grandkids will see it. It's really going to, you know, have terrible consequences for the people of the future. Great. In a way, that's a great counterpoint, I think, to somebody who might have come away from the beginning of our discussion thinking, well, the moral Buddhist philosophy is just sort of sit there and grit your teeth and, you know, bear whatever hardship happens. I think we're bringing out kind of the uh, the other side of the story, as it were, here. Yeah. No, compassion uh, is the central later Buddhist virtue. The aim is to act compassionately. Now, what is the most compassionate thing? That's always going to be a really hard call. That's not obvious at all, uh, even in very mundane circumstances, you know. So you're a doctor, some Jehovah's Witnesses come with a sick child, and they say, well, you know, we don't want our kid to have a blood transfusion. Well, what do you do as a doctor? I mean, do you act compassionately to the parents or the kid? Okay, well... That's you know a hard choice, and you have to decide what is the best thing to do. You know, virtually anything, any decision you take is going to have good consequences and bad consequences. And figuring out what the best thing on balance is not going to be easy. I mean, it's what Aristotle called phronesis, you know, practical wisdom to implement these decisions. So, I mean, no one said ethical decisions were easy. So, uh, in your thinking about Buddhist political philosophy and how that would have to relate to some sort of actual project in the real world towards improving the conditions in which people live and towards diminishing suffering. What are some of the significant roadblocks you've been finding? What are some issues that would kind of make it more difficult to implement a sort of robust Buddhist political philosophy? So I've become convinced thinking about these issues that Ideologies of central importance. Why is that? Because, well, look, David Hume asked the following question. If you look at power structures, they almost always function for the benefit of the people in power. Okay, we've been there. Now, in many power structures, the people in power are minority, and that's certainly true in capitalism. We know all about the mob sin. Okay. Now, how is it that a minority can maintain the status quo if the system is not running for the benefit of the majority of people? Well, sometimes the answer is bloody obvious. You use violence, okay? So something like that happened in apartheid South Africa where the white minority kept the black and coloured population under control by military and police violence, okay? This is not contestable. Okay, one of the remarkable things about a modern democratic, and I say that in scare quotes, right, society, is that it doesn't resort to violence much. Now, it does sometimes. So when the chips are really down, you can bring in the military, you can bring in the National Guard or whatever. So when things get serious, you know, the powers that be will call in violence. But it's remarkable, that happens very, very rarely. Okay, so how is this done? Well, it's because you don't control people by Violence, you control people by their minds. Okay, you get them to accept that the system, let's say capitalism, is natural, God given, inevitable, in their interest, just. Okay, and as long as people think that, okay, they're not going to balk at it. But all these claims that it's just, that it's inevitable, that it's God given, that's just demonstrably false. Yet, this is the ideology that people have received by you know all sorts of things advertising 
political propaganda, their education. Now, there's absolutely no hope of changing while people have this mindset. So a crucial part of any change for the better, I think, is going to have to be understanding why people have these attitudes or how they're brought to have these attitudes and then thinking how these can be shown to be what they are, namely a kind of a thinly veiled justification for the benefit of a, an elite minority. Graham Priest, thank you so much for coming back on Elucidations. Thank you. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>